everyone. Welcome to the Dairy Meets Beef podcast. This is Jake Vermeer, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lance Nielsen. Together, we'll be exploring a whole range of topics from agriculture, life on the farm, and politics. Turn up the dial in your tractor, single cab Chevy, and enjoy the ride. Well, my buckle makes impressions on the inside of her thigh. There are little feathered Indians where we tussle through the night. If I'd known she was religious, then I wouldn't have came stone to the house of such an angel and fucked up to get back. We both have a lot of takes on the world, and we thought we'd share it with some other people. And uh, we just wanted to kind of bridge the gap between dairy farming and beef farming, and uh, and talk about the differences and similarities that are uh, are part of both industries. We thought there weren't very many podcasts like that out there, and hopefully enough people listen that we keep doing this. So how are you today, Lance? I'm doing well, thanks, Jake. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've been uh, we've been having these kind of discussions with each other for each other for a few years now and it always strikes me that you know beef and dairy the similarities that exist but we never really discuss these you know there isn't a whole lot of information sharing between the beef and the dairy world and you know from from me being on the beef side i i think there's a lot we can learn from from dairy you know we have uh we have uh, the same sort of requirements for nutrition, the same sort of requirements for, you know, we're, we're raising, both raising cattle. And we, we have a lot to learn from, from an industry that is far more advanced with nutrition and, and genetics. And, and I always enjoy when we get into these discussions. And I hope people listening can enjoy that too. Yeah, for sure. So I guess for our listeners, because we're both going to be bringing different audiences to the podcast, hopefully, through our social media platform. So Let's just introduce ourselves to our audiences. For so, for those of you on Lance's side that don't know me, I'm I'm Jake Premier, and we farm uh, just 20 minutes southeast of Camrose, Alberta. Milk 600 cows and farm about 2,500 acres of land. Um, shipping right now about 22,000 liters of milk. So we're a very serious dairy operation that prides itself in innovative technologies and progressive ideas. Um, but it all started quite a few years ago in 1991. My parents. Uh, Marijn and Ons Vermeer moved from, uh, the, from the Netherlands in Europe. They immigrated to Canada. And I started as a two exchange students and uh, worked at a few different farms. And after uh, about two years, they got married and bought a farm in Redwater, Alberta. So they started with about 45 cows, 50 milking cows. And uh, they uh, just slowly kept growing and expanding and reinvesting every dollar, growing their business, watching the pennies, um, investing smart. And uh, by 2008, um, they were milking about 220 cows when we were approached by an uh, oil upgrader in a railway company, uh, so CPR and Suncor, and uh, they actually were planning on building about five upgraders in that Redwater Sturgeon County area, um, actually one of which had only ever been built, which was kind of sad because our farm got demolished for no reason, but we sold our farm there and we're, we moved here to Camrose, Alberta and uh, bought uh, a grain farm and then built a dairy on top. So that's kind of real quickly what our story is. I'm sure we'll get into it further, but Lance, how did you uh, start farming? Yeah, so my uh, my wife and I, we, we have four kids and we farm just south of Stettler, Alberta. 
we have a cow-calf operation and also confined feeding for about a thousand head. Our, our confined feeding operation consists of, of primarily heifer development, developing females for for replacements in the beef herd. And we do projects with, with Olds College and in developing heifers and um, you know sell them out into the uh, into the world into Alberta to to uh, you know try to improve the the fertility and longevity of the of the beef cow and then for our uh, you know anything that isn't replacement quality females or for home race steers that are born out of our home out of our uh, other cow herd we have a off farm uh, you know farm to plate meat business where we sell direct to the consumer. And so we actually get to see, you know, from the genetics and how they work from from, from birth, um, you know, right through weaning and then, then feeding we, the feedlot pens and then see them hanging on the rail and then hear from our consumer as well when they actually consume the product. So it gives us a pretty nice wide scope on how our genetics and how our operation is doing. And it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very nice farm that they run there down in Settler and really nice family we've enjoyed getting to know each other and actually the way that me and Lance met I'll tell the story how we met because it's quite peculiar I guess we maybe wouldn't have crossed paths if it hadn't have happened but maybe eventually but um, I was invited by uh, Alberta Milk our uh, parent organization here in Alberta um, uh, to go to a farm to table event in uh, was in a still or close to Calgary there I think it was, it was, old, eh? I was yeah, old. old yeah it was an old and uh, really wasn't my scene um uh, we don't do any processing. Um, yes, we're dairy farmers and we, of course, produce high quality milk, but we're not so much involved in the actual marketing of the product. So it was, it was interesting to go to and spent an evening driving down there and ended up sitting beside Lance, obviously, but also these two older women. And uh, wasn't really my type of conversation. Like I, there was only so much I could talk to them about, about milk. So after a while, kind of ended. So and for those of you who do know Lance, he's, he's a little bit of a more quiet reserved person at first and a little bit intimidating so i remember sitting beside him and just saying like okay well this is this guy knows beef maybe you can talk to him and maybe i can find some some way to end this two hour uh farm to table thing where i don't have much going on and talked and talked and talked about me breeding beef to uh to holstein and i guess hindsight now I, i'm sure lance's mind was just spinning cartwheels on how he could try and capitalize on that so after that initial meeting, uh, Lance got in touch with me and we, we started selling cross calves to Lance. And that's kind of how we started. And from there, it's kind of just turned into a friendship. So, from, and, and I guess from that, a podcast now. So it's kind of interesting, but that, that's kind of how me and Lance first met each other. Yeah, it was, it was good. It was, uh, I'd always heard about the, you're right, my mind was spinning because I was, <laughs> had been told that the Holstein Angus Cross was the best beef you could eat. And I wanted to experience that for myself. And, so is. It, is, it is it is uh it is good beef and uh you've since been able to to uh find more markets for your crossbred calves too and that's that's good that's what it's all about yeah exactly so our our farm breeds um about 20 percent of our our older herds so our third lactation plus cows we breed the beef semen and we do that because the genetics aren't as desirable um uh, so we're able to breed them to beef and then we'll use sex semen or sex embryos on the virgin heifers which we can capitalize uh more efficiently on their genetics and we can then sell the older genetics from the older call, call girls without actually calling them in that lactation um so that's kind of one of the reasons why dairy farms and especially ours have started using 
we've seen in the last couple of years is to try and optimize on genetic potential without having to call uh, too aggressively. So, you know what I remember the most about that evening? I, I agree that wasn't really my scene. Either. <laughs> I don't I don't enjoy those things very much, but uh, I was happy that you were sitting beside me. And I, <laughs> the, the, the the lady was sitting beside me on the other side of me was uh, uh, Lauren Harper, actually Stephen Harper's wife. Oh my God! <laughs> I don't. We, I don't know if we ever talked about that. But no. Well, it was her. I know it was her. I know that. She was the one that was sitting on the other side of me. That was a pretty fancy deal. But what I remember most from that is that was when the NDP were in power, and yeah. the the uh, egg minister O'Neill. Yes. What's his name? Never wore a cowboy hat in his life before he became minister. Yeah, he was there. Oh, we got into a we got into a discussion. I remember telling him at that point that he should enjoy his last year or two because he'll never see the light of the ministry again. And I was right, but I remember it was a reasonably aggressive conversation. <laughs> That's pretty aggressive, yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're not just a keyboard warrior, that you're able to stand up when it's, when it's faced with that. But, man, I did not know that Lauren Opera, that would have been, or did you ever able to capitalize on that connection? Or never? No, I, I, we said a few words to each other. She had another couple of women with her and yeah but yeah whatever those money that's crazy and it's claimed to fame there i was sitting beside lauren harper but. yeah i never did that you never told me that that's interesting hmm, cool but yeah. uh that was a cool event but uh yeah not really uh my scene either it's uh it's definitely for the people actually it's kind of designed for people like yourself that are able to bring products to the consumer but it's it was a very niche city-like feeling event yeah, it was for people that want to sell the restaurants or, you know, fancier mm -hmm. things. And that's, that's not my scene at all. I, I don't, I, yeah. I'd rather we sell direct to the consumer that has, you know, three kids living in their suburban house, you know, and that's more our niche market. So, yeah, well, it was, it was interesting to get invited to, and I'm certainly glad I did because uh, this has been a good, a good friendship and, and uh, hopefully turn into a good podcast as well. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> So some of the things that we wanted to kind of chat with people in our first episode, and uh, we do have an email and a contact, and you can contact us through our social media accounts, which we'll, uh, we'll tell at the end of the podcast. So if you have any questions, you can email us or send us a direct message on, on Twitter, on Facebook to, to ask us any questions, and we can answer those in the next episode. But for, day, for today, we just wanted to kind of focus on some of the similarities and differences between beef farming and dairy farming. And and kind of have a conversation about that and bring some awareness to it. Um, uh, so I guess one of the first questions um, uh, I had was, uh, like, we raise calves indoors in, in well-ventilated barns. And Lance is a cow-calf producer and produces uh, calves outside on pasture. And we are, right now, are facing a lot of problems with the indoor ventilation. Like, it, it's always something going wrong. It's very hard to monitor. Like, we're talking about little settings, not enough airspeed going out, air is not warm enough, calves are getting pneumonia, um, uh, and we're really contemplating just building outdoor calf facilities um, and dealing with the labor. So I guess my question to Lance is kind of how, how, how do you face pneumonia problems inside your cow-calf operation, and uh, are there any, any things that you do to try and prevent uh, stuff like that? Well, lots of uh, dry, clean bedding is probably the biggest thing you can do to prevent that. I mean, we vaccinate at birth for uh, for pneumonia, respiratory issues, but you know, those uh, 
those calves, you know, that have their mother's uh, milk is a way bigger advantage to us than I guess it probably is for you. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that's probably the biggest, you know, the antibodies passed from the milk and also just the, the nurturing and, and, you know, the, the, the closeness the calf has with its mother, I'm sure keeps the immune system higher too. So I don't, we don't struggle with pneumonia at the same rates that you do. So one of the things that we started now copying you guys, so you just alluded to it, you have a higher antibodies. Well, I would agree that we also have high antibodies. We are actually testing for it with our BRICS refractometer. So we're actually testing IgG levels inside of the colostrum from the mother. But what happens is we feed two feedings of colostrum to these calves and then they go to whole milk traditionally. So what we started doing is we started adding colostrum to two liters of whole milk and we call that the post day one. Um, uh, so we started actually supplementing colostrum into whole milk to get that what we call transition milk. And I, I, I recently released some videos with Altogenics, who, who's our partner with the colostrum and, and trying these trials, because it's, there's not, it's not been proven by universities or anything, but we're looking at the beef industry and saying, why do they have less problems than us? We have way more control. Why do we still have more problems? And well, of course, one of the problems, of course, could find feeding operation, have a lot more bacteria and tight spots. Um, that typically cow-calf guys would have, but cow-calf operations is the calf stays on the beef cow and that cow produces colostrum or transition milk, not for only first two, first day or first two days, but probably for seven or eight days. And the calf's immune system doesn't kick in till day 10, usually. It's a very vulnerable calf until day 10. So that mother is passing consistently and continually the IgGs and the antibodies through to the calf. So that's something that we started copying and on the scalers front, that has really, really helped our farm. Like, we cut down scours um, by about 20%, or sorry, like, by, by way more, but we are still on a 24% scour rate, and we're down now to about 4%. And it's it's about, there's a high morbidity, but not a very high mortality. So we, we very rarely lose a calf to scours. We'll have a few that get it, but they don't usually, die, or they never die from it, really. And so that's one of the things that we really look at the beef industry. And, and said, like, what's, what's something that's something that they do and they do well, um, even though it's naturally occurring. It's not like you choose to do that, but it's something that happens there. And that's something that we need to look at. So that's kind of interesting. How much do you think the fact that the mother is, is side by side with that beef calf, the, you know, she's licking it. She's, she's, you know, the, 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 the touch element of, of feeling comforted by its mother. How much do you think that plays into it? Or are you looking at ways to replicate that? Yeah, I guess I would have to factor in with some sort of stress levels. Um, we removed the calves literally within a half hour, and it's something that's a con kind of a contentious point inside the dairy industry. And we do it completely for biosecurity reasons um, for both the cow and the calf. Um, in the beef world, you're, you're outside, there's a little bit less bacteria going on, um, there's less contamination, and it's not as big of a deal on the mother's side for there to be bacteria load because there's not enough, enough milk production. I had a couple cows this week. By day four of lactation, they're already giving over 50 liters. So when we have too much bacteria on the t dense, either from the calf or the environment, and that calf starts drinking with the mom, we start seeing mastitis like crazy. And then that's dangerous, of course, for the mom. It's, it could be life-threatening. So that's why I remove them early. And I think that the stress levels for both are lowest at, with the quickest amount of time cut. Like if you, I've been at Lakeland, like I went to school at Lakeland College, and we had the dorms really close to the farm there. And the nights that we got no sleep were not the Thursday nights at the zoo. They were the nights the beef farmers were 
weaning the calves because it was a nightmare on college because those calves were screaming. So I, I don't believe that cutting them early is, is less stressful than cutting them later. So. Oh, I, I would think if you pull that calf within the first half hour, I bet there's like virtually no stress. I mean, I've seen that if we happen to have a calf that, you know, dies from, from some issue, if they're a day old versus four days old versus, you know, you have a stillborn or something, right? You know, there's not a whole lot of mourning period on that cow with a stillborn calf. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we actually, one of the talks we get into is the weaning project we did with Olds College as well on what causes a cow less and a calf less stress, abrupt weaning versus fencing versus all these other methods. And, and I'm of the opinion that, that abrupt pulling that Band-Aid off in one rip is, is the less strips, least amount of stress for the mother and the calf. Because the beef farms are doing, like that's where those yellow easy wean uh, nose tag, tags come from. It's the idea that leaving the calf with the mom for a longer period of time but not allowing her to drink anymore because that's ultimately what the goal of the beef farmer is trying to do, right? You're trying to wean those calves off those moms and start getting them on the hard feed. Well, it's hard to do when the mom's around and that teat's easily available. So one of the things I've seen in the beef industry is you guys start using those yellow tags. Have you guys ever had any success with that or is the theory correct on that? Well, we did a, we did a study with Olds College this fall actually on that. And we, we did a, a group, we did four groups. One was an abrupt wean, one was a fence line, one was the quiet paddle or whatever they're called, the nose, the yellow nose paddles. And then we left a, a group on the cows for longer, as we call that the control group. So and I think, you know, we did it pretty late. We weaned these calves at the end of November. So they're getting pretty old. They're March, April born calves. Well, end of March, April born calves. And weaning the calves late favored abrupt weaning because they had time to learn how to eat with their mothers. They'd, we'd been feeding them some silage already and some hay with their mothers. So they knew how to eat. And so I think if we, and we're going to, we're going to do another, uh, another trial here, this, this next weaning season. But I think the earlier we would have weaned would have favored abrupt less, but with the nose paddles, and this doesn't matter whether you wean them early or late, every calf, every single calf had um, rubbed bra in their nose where the where that paddle um, you know connects and it squeezes hard right because it, it can't come out and you, even even with that you still lose some but every calf had these rubbed raw places and so we, we got those calves in weekly and we we took pictures and inspected inside their nostrils we used an infrared camera to take uh, temperatures of their of that area and there was there was infection in most of the calves, and every single calf was rubbed raw. Like I, I would never use the nose paddles ever again. And the so the scale head on our squeeze calculates the average daily gain since they last ran through. So we're running through weekly, right? So it was only basically what they did that week. And every nose paddle calf had a negative daily gain for the first two to three weeks. Wow, that's crazy, and that's money lost. That's money yeah. lost. Whereas the abrupt calves, they were, you know, and again, this favored over fence line or everything. The abrupt calves, they gained. Even the first week of weaning, they had a positive average daily gain. And that's because they were older. They already knew what the feed bunk was. It favored them to be weaned later. But they, there was less sickness. There's more, we, we, we had more sickness in the nose paddles. 
there's none in the abrupt and they gained weight. It was, it was quite eye-opening actually. I was, I was a bit amazed at some of that. Yeah, that is, that is crazy. Um, uh, that's really crazy. And that, I, I think one of the other things that I wanted to, that's, that's similar to this is we, we have this, we started with, uh, we call them three titters. So obviously cow calves in normally with functional four quarters or four teats, but we've seen since about 10 years, we've now been using group housing and robot feeders. So calves can automatically come drink milk whenever they want, just, just like in pasture with the beef cow, they can come drink small amounts of milk, but then 24 seven, but we've seen our amount of three titters significantly increase. And we don't know if it's a, because of the robot feeder or B because of the social group housing aspect. And I was in one of the rooms today with my nutritionist and these calves are still getting about eight, nine liters a day. That's a lot of milk. Um, so they're by no means hungry. Um, there's even free choice calf starter pellets. There's even some TMR in there. So they're by no means hungry or thirsty or anything like that, but they are constantly licking and bunting and touching each other. And that is a couple of problems. A, of course, bacterial. That's probably why pneumonia spreads much faster in our rooms because, because of the social interaction, which scientists have, tried to claim it's positive for the calves socially, which, which I totally believe, but uh, health-wise, it's a detriment. But I guess the question, but going back to the question is, that bunting, we believe, is opening up teat ends, even at a very, very early age. And we were wondering, like, why doesn't this happen as much in beef cows? Well, or what happens, we're, like, we're wondering what naturally would happen, what would happen if the cow had stayed with its, calf, with its mother, just like in a cow-calf operation? Well, the mom would kick the calf, wouldn't it? It would, if that calf comes too often and displays those social behaviors of licking and being an annoying little calf, well, the cow just kicks it, right? But in a group of 16 other heifer calves of a similar age, there's none of that going on. They all want to play. Like, so we're seeing a way more three titters and we don't know how to change that. And that's kind of one of the pros to going back to individual housing is to get rid of three titters because we're about 20% of our cows are three titters. And uh, that's a ton of milk lost. Do you think some of that behavior in the calf pens might be boredom? Like, you know, if they're outside on a cow calf, they, you know, they got space. Even in, even if it's a confined pen, they still got a lot of space. And, you know, most people are in quite a big area. And, you know, we've seen in the confined feeding, if you have a feeder calf that's, you know, a weaned feeder calf, so you're talking eight months old plus or something, they will develop a weird social tick some of them and they will they will and you may even see it in your dairy cows they will like their their tongue will be extended way out and they'll be like kind of chewing their tongue and that sort of thing well that's releasing endorphins for them and giving them some pleasure pleasure feelings by chewing their tongue right and that becomes from boredom and you never see that develop except in confined areas right hmm. And so I wonder if that's similar with those calves. They're basically, they're bored and they're trying to figure out something to do to feel good. So I know, I know I've seen a lot of pictures in other dairy farms, but I don't know how much success has come with it. But I've seen dairy farmers throw balls like soccer balls in the pen. But I think that they still have the same issues that, that we do. So we're not quite sure where it's coming from. Even at what age, maybe it's not coming at this age. There's not enough research that's behind it yet to say like the three titter problem is coming from our blind quarters are coming at the four to five week stage because they're bored. We don't necessarily know that, which I guess is the first problem. We need to diagnose the problem and identify it. 
but uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen I, I, I would speak to the forum. I, I think that I've seen lots of dairy farmers throw soccer balls or a rope or, or an extra nipple in the room just for them to go play with something. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So, um, uh, any other topics that you're looking to get into, Lars? Well, we have one. We have one here that could take up a whole podcast of its own. But let's tackle it. All right. Should supply manage be introduced into the beef industry? And you're the one that brought up that topic. And I read it, and at first, oh, I just thought, man, that is a that is a can of worms to open, Jake. But we, uh, you know, I think I think there's a pretty simple reason for why that why that isn't you know ever introduced into the beef industry, and I'm not quite sure why it it works in dairy. But I think the reason for that is is you have too many too many individual. Um, individualistic farmers, individualistic ranchers, they, they aren't going to be able to agree on a common goal and agree on a common way to do things. I think ranching is one of the last great bastions of independence. And it, you know, you, you, the, the, someone that's attracted to, to cow-calf and to ranching is somebody that really values independence and freedom. But that uh, that's not to say that dairy dairy farmers don't just wonder what your perspective is on that yeah i think there's a couple of things at play like i think that dairy farmers by nature are also individualistic i don't think you'll find up to 500 some dairy farms that are in alberta i don't think you'll find one alike even even when you include higher colonies they're all different they have a different way of doing things but i think it comes down to a couple things first of all we have a very perishable item so very difficult for us to have any sort of power of negotiating when we're dealing with individual processors we're dealing with a product that needs to be moved. So right now, canola prices, like I think we just sold our canola for 1650. We finally pulled the trigger and we were able to do that. It was just sitting in a bin or in a bag, I guess, in an egg bag sitting outside. Well, milk, if the processor comes to me and says, look, your neighbor just sold it for five cents a liter lower than what you want. I'm going to take his, or you can match today and sign here. And no choice. The milk's got to go tomorrow morning. So that, that part's really difficult um, for, for a dairy farmer to on a perishable product. So there's really no hedging that comes with it. Um, uh, but I think the other thing on the beef side is that, and, and that's what supply management really creates a fairness, is that we can't get picked off by the processor. All three people inside of the food supply chain, the grocery store, the, re the processor, and the farmer, they all get an equal share of the pie. And there's no one gouging the other. Like, Currently, beef prices are going to be like really low, I believe, right? Like beef prices are, are not going to be high this year. But nope. do you think beef prices in the grocery stores are dropping? No. No, that's right, and and that is that. I think the the uh, ideals I, I laid out as reasons why farmers would or ranchers would never go to to supply manage is also to our detriment too, right? I mean, I'm not a proponent of supply management. I'd never, I would be, never be the one that would want to to uh, agree to the, to be in that system. However, you are right. We we are at the mercy of uh, of probably really it's a relatively small amount of people. I mean, I think most most feeder cattle in this province go through the hands of like. You know four or five people it's it's a very very small group and then obviously we only have 
you know, two big packing plants as well, right? But, you know, most of the cattle are owned or at least bought at the auction art level by, you know, five people. It's, it's quite amazing how small of a group it is. And yeah, the, the, the cow-calf guy, I mean, we, we run on thin margins because you have no choice, right? And I mean, that's why, that's, that's why I started our, you know, farm plate to try to bring more value to the lower end of our calf crop. You know, I think, I think you get paid pretty good or, you know, in relation to what the year is, but you get paid pretty good for the top half or three quarters of your calf crop. But on years like this, you give away the bottom quarter, like give it away. They have any problem at all. They, they yeah. discount you heavily. So you got to find a way to, to bring up the margin on that bottom. And so, you know, I guess the, what you're saying was fly man would fix that. Obviously I've chose to figure out a way to attempt to fix that on my own, but yeah, it's, that is a problem. No, and you're, you're for sure. Right. Like what you guys have done is I don't think it, it's just created value for the product that's already there. Like the, the product is valued that high meat is a nutritional nutritious product as, as a meat in a, in a human's dietary uh, guide every single day. And uh, I think you're just getting, value for what it's worth like you're getting you're getting dollars for what it's worth where it's being lost along the way is from other people taking a piece of the pie right so that's where you're losing some of that commission but i think one of the other things um uh, forget where i was going to go with this um uh, oh yeah with the, you said four or five flyers well if beef farming or the beef sector is so free market like everyone believes in free market free market i've heard stories of cattle buyers sitting at auction sales and they see a competitor buyer come in and say, no, you can't be at the auction market today because it's my day. You can go to the next auction market. You can come tomorrow. I mean, that does happen out there. So it's, it's not necessarily done free market anymore. If, if the, the four or five feedlot buyers are getting together and saying, let's make sure that we buy cattle at the right price and let's not bid each other up. That happens all the time. It's actually even probably worse than that. You know, if you are want to, you know, enter the market and start buying a class of cattle, and that that you know regular buyer there, one of the one of the four or five that buys most of the cattle, you know, they they just might not allow you to buy them. Or what they'll do is they'll allow you to buy a couple, and then they'll they'll outbid you the rest of the day on them, and so you kind of get hung with, you know four or five of these in, you know, when you're trying to make up a whole pen and it's really a pain to have only a couple. So you realize, wow, I just got, uh, I just got four or five and I really screwed myself here. And so you don't bother going at it again. And then the next week they're getting them for cheap. They, they had to overpay for, for one day to, to squash you out of the market. And then they're back to getting them for, for real cheap next week again. That, that happens all the time. So, so we're, we're living or we're, so, Beef farmers are dead set against supply management. It's a dirty word. I understand that. That's totally fair. But everyone is for free market, free market. That doesn't sound very free market to me. And I, it almost seems to me as an outsider, there's, there's, you have like three, you have a few more levels. Like we have dairy farmers that produce milk, sell them to processors, processors sell to, to grocery farms. Pretty, pretty simple. But for you, you have cow calf operations that are then marketing against each other to the feedlot guys who seemingly will have no problem working in tandem to buy or keep prices low and to buy large amounts of cattle 
and they then sell to the slaughterhouses, right? Who then sell to the grocery store. So you really have an extra level there. And, I, and I'm alluding to the cow calf versus the feedlots. And, I, and you're one of both. So just talk a little bit about the, the relationship and the differences between cow calf and, and feedlots and, and the ability to, uh, to work against each other. Well, first of all, I'll go back to what I said in, in an earlier um, point is I think your good quality calves are overpaid for every fall. I think that feedlots or, or buyers, you know, as a, as, a, as a person that has tried to, you know, play the, the feeder steer game, I think steers are over, your top steers are overpaid for. And um, so that there, there is that, that there's that point of it that, that you know, I don't want to slag on the guys that are the buyers too much because I think they are actually quite fair when it comes to, to buying cattle. And there is, there is competition for your, for your calf crop in the fall. Um, you know, there's competition for the top three quarters of the calf crop in the fall. Everybody wants a nice pen of calves. Right. What gets hurt is the bottom quarter of your calf crop. And, you know, for some of the good cow calf guys that, you know, they call them the reputation herds. Well, maybe it's the only the top, only it's the bottom 10% of their herd of the calf crop, right? For a poor operator, maybe it's, 50% of the herd. I, I, you know, it, it depends on how good of a cow calf um, producer it is. It's, it's the bottom end that, that gets stolen. And I don't know how you solve that. That's, you know, I think the attraction of people doing exactly what I did and having a farm to plate business, or, you know, it, they just realize that there's not a whole lot they can do about it. And they sell them for almost nothing. And, they complain about it, right? You know, that that's when it's a when it's a tough year, when the prices are low, when there's an oversupply of calves, the bottom end gets absolutely trounced, you know, and and you know that's where that's where you know there's there's people try to do things like like um, um, you know instead of selling individually, they group them together and uh, sell many producers calves. To, together in a, in a group so you can get a light group, a bigger, a bigger selection of light calves. There's, there's things they try to do to help, but it's not, it's, it's tough. A tough year is tough. Is, is there a real, um, is there, is it really discouraged to keep your own bottom 10%? Like what, if, if the feedlots are stealing them, they're still good enough to finish, right? There's, there's not like huge issues, but it's more the ability for the feedlots to ding them. Right. So what, yeah, what stops what stops cow calf guys from finishing their own bottom ten percent? I think a lot of I think because it's hard, you know, or it's, it's it or takes a lot of time, and people you know aren't necessarily set up for it. They aren't into feeding, you know, a ration, a finishing ration. They're a cow calf guy that feeds hay, and they're not feeding a, a, a barley, you know, a finishing ration of some sort. That they're just not set up to do it, and it's it's you know, a farm to plate operation is a lot of work. <laughs> it's, it's not a license to print money. Like I think a lot of people think it is. And probably I thought it was a higher margin business when I got into it several years ago, but it's, it's, it's a tough go. And, and uh, you know, it, it is, it is a lower margin business than, than what you think. And that it, I think a lot of that is, is for 
you know, it's easy to, it just, just, just like with selling a good calf crop, it's easy to sell your good cuts of beef, right? It's easy to sell good steaks. It's easy to sell ground beef, relatively easy to sell roasts. But I can't extract value out of anything else out of that animal. You know, whereas those, those big packing plants are getting money out of the hide, potentially they're getting money out of the offal, they're getting money out of the, you know, part, they're using every part of that animal. I'm just selling those good cuts. I can't even sell the organs most of the time, right? So, so that's what makes it a tough business to be in. And, and you know, I, a lot of, a lot of cow calf guys just aren't in to set themselves up to do that. Right. Yeah. And there, there is definitely a huge amount of efficiency in those, in those, in those slaughterhouses that we do have in Alberta. Like I, I definitely know that. And I think we've learned that even more during the COVID crisis when there was a big spotlight on, on Cargill down uh, by high river, but, uh, what's going on there and how efficient they are. Yeah, it definitely speaks to uh, the value they're able to extract out of every animal, which is a positive thing, right? So it is. And we, thing. we have, we have other, I mean, there's so many challenges. We could, boy, we could have a whole set, say this or a whole episode on this, you know, they, we have a kill capacity issue in Alberta and, you know, and that's, there's, there's, there's reasons for that. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of bottlenecks are preventing people from, from getting outside of the two big packing plants. But uh, yeah, if we could solve that on these on, on a podcast episode, I think the industry would be pretty thankful. So yeah, I don't know how, how long we've recorded. I guess I have one more question quick. I, I've been to a couple of feedlots. Um, I've seen uh, uh, Highland Feeders up by Beggarville. Um, they were a big donor of uh, Lakeland College and uh, they're involved with the board and stuff. So I had the chance to meet their owners, uh, Mike Atelco, I believe. And, uh, and I visited their feedlot once at the big biogas plant there. But uh, they do, um, there's a thing like where you can contract out your, your bottom temp or your, your steers, right? So you can actually contract the feedlot to feed your animals. Is that then, or is the management fee or the commission too high on the feedlot side? But could you then contract out your own bottom to percent if you're not willing to do the work or have the infrastructure to be able to kind of keep that margin from letting your your light calves get slaughtered at, at the at the auction mark in price. Yeah, for sure there is. I mean, there's there's lots of there's lots of feedlots my size or or even twice my size, right? A thousand to to twenty five hundred. There's there's even just in Stetler County, there's there's quite a few, and a lot of them would do custom feeding and, and finishing. And there there is absolutely that option for producers to do. And I don't think too many take advantage of it. And I I don't know why. Hmm. But um, yeah, that, that option is actually quite easily available. There you go. I just solved another problem for the beef industry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually feeding, I have a custom pen for a cow calf guy right now. I am feeding a custom pen for a guy. And, and, uh, and are they slower for average day of the game? Or what are some of the problems you see with some of these lighter animals? Is it just they didn't do so well with the mother or did they have bad genetics? What is it that makes them the bottom 10%? Well, there's, there's some, you know, a frozen eared calf will get discounted because it can't be implanted with a growth hormone because they go into the ears. So the frozen ears, they get discounted. You know, if they have different coloring and markings on them, you know, that, that, that signify maybe they have a longhorn genetics in the background or something like that, or just some odd, you know, coloring on the, they'll, they'll get discounted. And then there's just poor animals, poor genetics, and they're just poor doers and we end up we end up with the bottom end of the calf crop being discounted so it's uh 
there's a wide range, but I think you have to be a pretty good producer not for it to be 10 to 15% of your calf crop at least. So yeah, we uh, I think we're probably getting probably pretty pretty late in the podcast here. We can I don't think we had a scheduled time to to wrap up or or uh, go to, but I, I certainly enjoyed this conversation, and I I think we'll we'll be able to have uh, lots of topics. We we glossed over a lot of different a lot of different items here that could have been a whole episode in their own. Yeah, definitely. No, I think we'll uh, we'll cut it up here. Um, uh, we'll just. Uh, Give a shout out to our uh, social handles. Um, uh, so you can follow me at uh, Jake Vermeer on Twitter. Vermeer, uh, I think it's Vermeer's Farm on Vermeer's Dairy Farm on Instagram, Vermeer's Dairy LTD on Facebook, um, at Farmer Joe on TikTok if you so feel like it. Not much content there, but I guess you can follow me there. Lance, I do believe we have an email address as well. Yeah, we have dairymeatsbeef at gmail.com. Dairy meats beef and meats is is uh, m e a t s at gmail.com and then uh, yeah for social media for me my my big one is is our is our uh, Nielsen beef page on Facebook that's where we have the most content and that's geared towards urban and and some and some rural people but it's it's really geared to a lot towards urban. If you want to follow more of the research projects we do, we have Nielsen Cattle Development on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, we do have an Instagram Nielsen Beef page. And coming soon is my kids are starting a Nielsen Beef TikTok page. So we'll be excited when that gets kicked off here. Awesome. I look forward to seeing it. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. And uh, we're going to try and do this on a weekly basis, at least in the winter while we both have some time. So. Give us, a, give us a like on our social media handles and shoot us a message if you have any questions. And I guess until next week, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Dairy Meets Beef podcast. This is Jake Vermeer, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lance Nielsen. Together, we'll be exploring a whole range of topics from agriculture, life on the farm, and politics. So turn up the dial on your tractor, single cab Chevy, and enjoy the ride.